Time to Travel with Karen Key. Well, back in the studio with us this evening, it's Richard Holmes. Haven't chatted to him for a while. Richard is the iAfrica.com travel editor, and he's recently travelled to the UK, actually to John O'Groats. Richard, good evening. Welcome back to the show. Good evening, Karen. Thank you. So, John O'Groats, we all think it's the most northern point. It's not, is it? Well, it's not. No, that's that's the the thing that'll come out in a trivial pursuit question. Yeah. I guess is the most <laughs> northern point. Uh, it is the most northern uh, town on the on the British mainland, which is why when you get people doing what's called the joggle, which is the John O'Groats to Land End journey, which is either um, either by bicycle or foot, or I mean, there's a, there's a story of I think it was in the early 1900s of a guy who played golf from John O'Groats to Land End. Took him weeks and weeks. Weeks like to do it. Anyway, um, no, the northern, the northernmost point on the of the UK of the mainland, at least. That, that's, is, the, that's the point we need to make. It's the mainland well. because mainland. it's not the northernmost UK. It doesn't include place. the Shetland Islands. Exactly. Correct. Um, is a place called Dunnet Head, which is kind of halfway between uh, John O'Groats and a town called Thurso, which is the northernmost railway station in the UK. You can see there's a train here. You can get the northernmost anything basically. Um, but yeah, the John O'Groats is, uh, you know, it's, I, I always kind of enjoy travelling to these slightly oddball places which have some strange moniker or reason to go there. And yeah, the, I've been to London plenty. I've been to uh, Land's End and Penzance, which is down in the southwest quite a bit, and um, decided it was time to head north. So um, yeah, I flew to London with British Airways, uh, stopped at Heathrow, flew with British Airways up to Edinburgh, and then from Edinburgh caught a flight uh, on a little prop plane to a town called Wick, and then from Wick caught the bus to John O'Groats, and from John O'Groats the town walked to the very northernmost end of John O'Groats, which is uh, about a mile away down some country lanes to a, a wonderful little spot, which is basically, it started life as a harbour, and um, it, there still is a harbour there, and there's a fishing boat or two, and the, the name even refers back to an old ferryman in the 1600s, I think it was, called Jan de Groote, I think he was a Dutchman, and he charged a groat, which was a coin that no longer exists, but that was his um, his currency for a ferry across to Orkney, so people would come along and pay their groat and go over with, with Jan. Today, it's a, it's a place that's on sort of having a revival, which is which is good to know, and good to see, because for a long time, it was, it was slated by guys books as being the sort of rather dreary little corner of Scotland which didn't really hold much attraction and um a couple of years ago, a company called Natural Retreats, who have properties in the UK and in the United States, took over what was the uh, the inn at John O'Groats, and which was basically the only place to stay down on the coastline, and revamped it into this lovely little boutique hotel, which has um, sort of hotel rooms and self-catering apartments, and then some larger self-catering chalets up on the hillside. So basically, there's this lovely place to stay, which is right on the waterside, and um, the area has a lot more to do than I would have expected, being the end of the world. You know, you kind of expect a, a lonely wind swept clifftop and it has that but part of the attraction of that area is precisely this sort of end of the world feeling and um, there's incredible wildlife to be explored there as well which is which is something I didn't expect to find you sort of you know the UK is not known for its wildlife um, other than the odd badger which they're trying to get rid of and a few, and a few fellow deer in. maybe but, but um, now there's this place you stayed is this natural retreats is that where you, is that what you were talking well, about well that's the name of the company it's called natural okay. natural retreats they have uh, like I said revamped this old hotel and there's actually a lovely story about the the original dwelling they built by Yandekrutsa, the ferryman, who apparently had eight quarrelling sons and he built an octagonal house so that they could each have their own doorway <laughs> to get in. <laughs> <laughs> the house is long gone, unfortunately, but part of the inn is uh, a lovely a lovely library and reading room with um, sort of great literature on the area and a fireplace in one corner. And that is octagonal as a sort of a, a nod to Yandu mm. and his quarreling sons. But um, yeah, so it's it's the northernmost point in the UK mainland, which is which is a draw card for many people. But there's lots to do in the area as well. So uh, natural retreats run a boat trip, which I wasn't able to go on, unfortunately. I was there at the end of winter, so they hadn't put the boat back in the water. And it was pretty chilly, so I'm not sure I would have liked to have been out on the sea. But uh, they do a boat trip, which is a huge draw card. Um, there's some incredible uh, marine wildlife in that area. You get orcas, you get um, whales, there's uh, mink whales, there's plenty of bird life. And the bird life is something that I enjoyed on one of the walks that I did. There's lots of great mountain biking and walking in that area along the clifftops. And it's very gentle walking because it's uh, it's clifftops, so it sort of meanders up and down. Um, and the only problem is it's normally an out and back walk, but there are a number of routes that you can do. I did one of the sort of most famous in that area, which is to an, a lighthouse called Duncan's Behead, and it's a couple of miles, probably you know a few hours walk there and back, and um, wonderful sort of walks right along the the edge of the cliff uh, where it gets dangerous. It's fenced off, and there's some fantastic bird watching along that area. There's skuas, there's uh, petrels, there's some puffins, which are the, Ooh, one, one okay. of the main attractions of that area. The interesting thing about the puffins, we all know them to be these bright, colourful birds, but they don't stay that way. I was surprised to learn. No, apparently it's just breeding plumage. Well, mm. I don't know if you'd call well, it even, a big plumage, that beak, but. I mean, that, <laughs> A colourful beak, that just 
disappears or falls it, off it or goes something. Away. Absolutely, yes, that's what I. And that's the beak is completely. I mean, now I'm sounding terribly knowledgeable, but I happened to be watching an episode of QI the other <laughs> evening, and they're actually, funnily enough, we're talking about puffins and what that happens to them in the mating season, and mm. then in the the winter when they're not in the mating season, that whole colourful beak actually falls off, disappears, and the whole shape of the beak is completely different. Yeah, yeah, they kind of lose that. I mean, mm. that's what they're they're known for. The sort of the parrots of the Atlantic. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But there's another interesting fact about puffins, though. Well, that's what I was about to mention. I, I love the fact that they were they were classified as a fish so the cat so that catholics could eat them on a friday which is seems rather sort of negating the point of not eating meat on fridays but anyway there you have it yeah but they are they are now protected they are protected yeah i don't think you'll find puffins so you can't even eat them on a friday no absolutely not on a friday saturday whenever you like you can't have them roasted or fried they're not available And um, so, yeah, over to, I took a wander over to Duncan's Head. It's this lovely lighthouse that overlooks, um, there's some wonderful coastal scenery in that area. I mean, I'm a big scenery fan. So even if there's not a lot going on with birds or wildlife, there's just to look out at the ocean. And it overlooks an area called the Pentland Firth, which is basically where the North Atlantic meets the North Sea. And it's it's known as this remarkably hazardous sort of um, patch of water. And I was there on a wonderfully sunny, calm day. And you can just see the point where the two the two waters meet. And it's it goes from being absolutely placid and calm to this boiling mass of water and I, I wouldn't have liked to have been out in a boat in that water but um, yeah boat trips is very popular there's a lot of sailing boats around that sort of um, tour around that area um, and then there's some lovely rock formations again if you're looking at scenery there's a place called the Duncanby Stacks or the Stacks of Duncansby which are these freestanding spires of rock uh, shortly offshore and it's where a lot of the birds like to hang out obviously so if you're a bird watcher you want to take a wander down to the Stacks of Duncansby with a pair of binoculars Did you ever make it down to Dunnett Head which is the northernmost point on the mainland I didn't unfortunately to be honest I think it's more of the same <laughs> a lot, it's just there's nothing there it's just like a cliff type thing correct. And this is me again having watched QI the other night right. there was a picture of it there's just nothing there no it's a parking lot uh, as Pretty far much. as I understand it's, can... a, it's a bird sanctuary mm. at the moment um, the Royal Society for Protection of Birds um, so yeah there's not much more you might find in the summertime there'll be a caravan selling tea and ice cream cones oh, but, uh, but, okay. but that's about it no I didn't have a car this time which is mm. um, a good and a bad thing I, I met some lovely people travelling on public transport and there was surprisingly good public transport in that area as well um, obviously a car is ideal for getting around but I was there for quite a short time and I was by myself so that makes hiring a car a little bit less affordable um, mm. and the UK at the moment is not what you'd call affordable it's yeah. getting better uh, when I was there it was just shy of 20 rand to the pound it's come down to about 17 rand 50 now so oh my, are we supposed to be happy at 17 oh my well, god no, so, yeah, 17 like rand really I would love 17 <laughs> rand 50 <laughs> compared to just short of 20 exactly, exactly you mentioned you went to Wick where, where about is that in relation to John O'Groats well that's about half an hour bus ride to the south of John O'Groats and um, as I say it was very, I went there twice I, well, I flew into Wick and then caught the bus up to John O'Groats and then caught a bus the next morning back down to have a look around and Wick is a lovely uh, a lovely little corner of Scotland and I was really a book before I went called The Silver Darlings and it's set in the area in and around Wick because Wick you wouldn't believe it looking at the town now which is sort of um, not fallen on hard times but its main industry has disappeared and that industry in the 1800s was the herring industry and at its peak in the sort of 1860s it was the largest herring port in Europe and it's amazing because the harbour is unchanged since those early days basically and it's it's probably a few hundred metres across I'd guess and they say that in the peak of the, the herring fishery that you could walk across the harbour from boat to boat it was basically jam-packed with wooden uh, fishing schooners and it's, you know, as as happened to so many fisheries, the cod fishery and what we have an issue with here as well is that it was boom and bust. So, you know, there were there were times when millions of herring were being were being being caught every single week. And of course, that was unsustainable. So mm. the town kind of boomed and, and fell by the wayside. But it was interesting as well because the, the town was laid out as the first industrial town in England. It was laid out by, um, well, it was paid for, I guess, by the benefactor William Pulteney. And it was called Pulteney Town up on the hillside. And it was, you know, laid out with so that houses would have a residential area up top and a yard for um, curing herring in the back. And there would be sort of certain areas set aside for um, coopers and fishermen and artisans and that sort of thing. So it was kind of a forerunner of what we see today and sort of towns being properly planned, I guess, as early town planning. And, and and um, being organized as such. And one of the other, of course, you know, when any, whenever any town sort of springs to life, there's going to be some booze around. And um, the, one of the loveliest parts of Wick is, that still continues to this day is the old Pulteney Distillery. And they make some lovely single malts if you enjoy single malts, especially um, not, not overly sort of peaty and salty as you find on the west of Scotland, but kind of leaning in that direction. And you can do a distillery tour for, I think it was six pounds, and they show you around and show you how whiskey's made. And, and then, of course, you get a dram at the end, which is always a highlight, especially when it's nine degrees out. 
warm you up. Now, you talked about flying in and taking the bus, but your mm. initial plan or your initial wish was to actually catch the train. Yeah, the train, the train. Oh, um, my, the train. <laughs> this, okay. this trip is going to go down in history for me as, as the notion of the best laid plans never kind of going oh, right, according okay. to plan. Um, yeah, my, my big idea was, and I mentioned it earlier, the you know one of the, the iconic trips, especially in the UK, is the joggle. So John O'Groats to Land's End. And people cycle it and do all the rest. And I thought it would be fun to do it by train. So I had a look at the map and sort of sussed out what was what. And the northernmost train station in Europe is in England is at Thurso, which is a half an hour bus ride from John O'Groats. And you can take the train. You can do it in 23 hours if you if you want to do it as fast as possible, all the way down to Penzance in the southwest of the UK. So that was my plan. I had my Britrail pass uh, all sorted. Britrail, for people who don't know, is um, a great way to travel in that you get a pass for, you know, it can be seven days, a month, or whatever the time period is. And you can either get it for travel on every day or a certain number of days. So, you know, five days out of 12, you can be on the trains. And you can just hop on and hop off as you go. You, you may need to make a reservation if you want things like the overnight sleeper service, which runs from Peddington. Uh, Pennington to Penzance, but otherwise you just show up at the station and, and show your pass and on you get. And that plan kind of came crashing down in, I think it was late January or early February when those big storms struck the yes, UK. Yes, I remember. And some of the rails lines were Correct. Washed there, away. There's an area called Dawlish down uh, on the south coast of the UK where the train is spectacular. It's kind of like um, if people know the train line from Musenberg to Simonstown mm. here in Cape Town, where it runs just meters from the from the shoreline. Now, luckily, False Bay is largely protected from winter storms, but you can imagine a major winter storm slamming into that train line. And it, it washed away the tracks. So my grand idea of going from Paddington to Pen Zance was kind of out the window. So I thought, okay, well, that's okay. Maybe I'll maybe I'll just, you know, go from Thurso down to London. And I'll pick up the journey at a later stage. So my train left Thurso at 8.30 in the morning. So I got on the bus at John O'Groats at 7.30. You know, that's an hour for a half-hour journey. No problem at all. I didn't take into account the Scottish school bus run, Ooh, which basically right. takes the John O'Groats <laughs> to Thurso bus and goes through every tiny little sheep farming village, oh every goodness. little croft picking up kids who don't stand at the bus stop as well. I wanted to throttle them because there's a bus stop where there's one kid and then 50 meters down the road, there's another kid who couldn't be bothered to walk to the bus stop. So we drive and then we stop again and they find their bus pass. They wait for their sister to come out of the house doing their hair still. Anyway, long story short, I got to Thurso just as my train was leaving. <laughs> <laughs> and the, ne the next train was six, seven hours later. Oh, no. If I'd taken that train, I would have missed my train from Inverness, which means I would have missed my train from Edinburgh and so on and you so forth. You just weren't destined to get on a train, Richard. Apparently, the, the, something in the, wasn't written in the stars no, for this, not, not, for, this not for you in the train, no. Mm. Absolutely. So what I did is I, I got off my very late school bus and kind of shot the bus driver an angry glare because he promised me we would be there on time. And luckily I'd been checking on my phone along the way thinking, okay, this isn't going to work. And there's an, a bus called the X99, which runs from Thurso to Inverness, pretty much at the same time as when my bus arrived. So I took my suitcase, ran into the middle of the road, put both hands up and like hailed the bus. To, well, I didn't really have a chance, of, a, a choice of whether to stop or not because he would have ridden me over. And luckily it was a kind old man who let me on the bus to, to Inverness. So happily, though, the, the, the upshot of that story is that the road runs very close to the train line for a lot of the journey. So I did kind of get a sense of where that train journey goes. Mm. And it's a beautiful line. It really is from Thurso to Inverness. It runs down the west, uh, the east coast of, of um, that corner of Scotland for quite a long while. So you get wonderful views over the Moray Firth. Um, there are Lynx golf courses along the way. There's these wonderful heritage villages, um, including the one where the guy who wrote, um, I, told, I think I told you, the book The Silver Darlings that mm. I was reading, the, the, the gentleman who wrote that. Around the area of Wick. Yeah, yeah, he was born in a village not far from there. Um, so wonderful villages to explore. And again, I think if you had a, if you were, had some time and a car, you could uh, you could spend a good couple of days exploring that area quite happily. But um, my bus arrived in Inverness, which is uh, quite a lovely town. I didn't have much time to to explore it, but it had, seems like you know it has a castle on the hill and a beautiful cathedral and that kind of thing. So I spent a, an hour or so wandering around there. Uh, there's a lovely market just opposite the train station, actually, if anybody's ever there for a, an hour or two, um, called the Victoria Market, which has got a couple of good restaurants and a nice um, Delhi and that sort of thing. Um, but then it was back to the train at last. and uh, On a train now? Okay. On a train That's at last. exciting, okay. Um, from Inverness to Edinburgh, and I, you know, I, I meant to bring along my notebook with all of the names of the little towns that we that we went through, which are you know written in English and Gaelic along the way, but um, that got left behind, I'm afraid. So, okay. but 
Basically, it is about a three, a three and a half hour journey from Inverness to Edinburgh. And it's one of the most scenic trips that I've done, I think, especially in, in late winter. You go through the heart of the Cairngorms National Park, and that's sort of as wild as Scotland gets, which is fairly wild, actually. And there were parts where the, the, the snow line was almost down to the railway tracks, um, just wonderful views of snow-covered mountains, lots of people getting on and off the trains with walking gear. There's a, a ski resort in that part of Scotland as well. Uh, and you can see it from, you know, how thick the snow was lying on the hills. So there's lots to do in that area if you wanted to, again, with a Britrail pass, hop on, hop mm. off. You could, you know, come to a village and find all of those villages have got a pub with rooms above or a little B&B. So you could, you could happily spend a couple of days uh, exploring. Unfortunately, a couple of days is very rarely what I have at my disposal. Yeah. So, so for me, it was uh, into Edinburgh and then running onto another train. And you'll pick up a theme here about kind of exploring the UK using the trains. And it was something that... The, the British people love to moan about their train services. You know, it's something that we don't have much experience of here. You know, we might... I, I took the the, over, the overnight train trip from Cape Town to Joburg a few times as a student, and we use the commuter services a little bit. But for getting around the country, we don't really use trains here in South mm -hmm. Africa. And it's a wonderful experience. They were very comfortable. They were they were on time, I found. Um, I had a little mobile app run by National Rail, which runs the rail network in the UK. And if you install it on your phone and you have 3G, you can plan your journey as you go. You can see if there's any delays coming up, and it's it's very useful. It's a very stress-free way to get around. Now, you, you've been to Switzerland. How did the rail times compare to your train tra I mean you've spoken about the trains and literally you could time them to the second in Switzerland. you could in Switzerland I have to say on this trip I would say the same applied I mean I was praying that my train from Thursa was going to be delayed <laughs> unfortunately the damn thing left right on time um, so yeah, yeah in my experience on this trip it was it was as good basically um, good I'm not sure that I would have left it uh, given uh, you know in Switzerland I timed it so that I basically got off the train and onto my flight at, Swi at um, yeah, Zurich International that was Airport cutting it a little fine. That you was do cutting, that there. I think you could do that in Switzerland I'm not sure I would do that in the UK, where you know the tube might have signal failure and you end up at Heathrow yeah. an hour late. So don't try that. I wouldn't. I wouldn't kind of give it that much credit. But be um, before you, you you went mm. off then to York. Before we get there, the one thing that you always talk about when you come in here is you've always been to some restaurant or some place and, and eaten some bizarre thing. And what was it this time? Or was there anything this time? We did not have time to explore the food side of life over there this time. Ah, what was it this time? Um, black pudding. Oh no, no, you can keep black that. Black pudding. <laughs> no, 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 you can keep that. Tell that me something was, else. That was in York, actually. No, that, tell that me, was tell breakfast. me something else. No, a good one. Again, it, it's no. single digits outside. Black pudding for no. breakfast was fantastic. I think it had been deep fried as well. Oh, so no, it was, Richard. It was hot and oily and meaty. and you I mean, now? you know what it is. So. No, 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 no. Tell me something else. Something else to Something eat. Something that's nice, that, that normal people would like that to eat. That normal people would eat. Yeah, not ah, I'll come back to you on that one. Yeah, in a I can think about it. Right, so off down on the train. <laughs> on the to train York. to York, which I'd never been to before, actually. The and, Grand um, Old Duke of York. Okay. The Grand Old Duke of York. Although it should perhaps have been the Grand Old Viking of York, actually, would okay. have been a better song, I think. Because right. part of the thing that I loved about York is that it has this rich Viking heritage. It was started by the Romans, actually. It's one of, again, it's something that we're not used to here, but walking along, uh, there's a, a, road called Stone, a road called Stonegate, which is, is one, one of the, the Romans. And, the, and it's a Roman road. Oh, there's wow. a sign saying, there's been a road here since 71 AD. We're like, right. <laughs> Just shy of 2,000 years, there's been a road here. Um, and that's quite remarkable, walking along streets like that, where there's that amount of history. Um, and the Romans obviously came and went. And then it was the Vikings that um, defined a large part of York's history. That was about 1,000 years ago. And the, the, the name York comes from the original um, Viking word, which was Jorvik. Um, and there's a, there's a fantastic museum, which is, has been around in York for, I think, a decade or two, but it's still good fun. And it's called the Jorvik Viking Museum. And the bulk of the museum, and that's partly why I loved it, is that it's not your standard museum, which is an, an old dusty thing with a little white card that you stand in front of and you read about. And there are a few exhibits like that here at, at Jorvik. But the bulk of the museum is basically a theme park ride. And it's got... I suppose what would remind people of kind of bumper cars that, you know, you get into a bumper car, although this mm. one seats about eight people, and you go along a predetermined track. You don't get to drive, let me clarify. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, you don't get to drive, it's sort of all automated, but you sit in your bumper car and you go through what Jorvik would have looked like when the Vikings were there as a fairly rough and tumble Viking settlement. And you wow, go, okay, you know, you go and meet, you meet Lars the fisherman who's just. I can't remember if his name's Lars, but you get the idea. Um, and you meet him and his family and you understand sort of what their part of in the village was. And then you meet the traders who were coming to trade things, you know. And they found artifacts there which had been sourced from um, the Middle East and North Africa and that sort of thing. So there was an incredible trade route um, kind of going, flowing in and out of York, which isn't far from the sea as the, you know, as the crow flies. And there's the River Ouse, which is um, fairly navigable. So... 
there's an incredible history there of the, of the Vikings, which is something that we don't have Not much really exposure about, yeah. to here in mm-hmm. here in South Africa. Um, but apart from that, there's I mean, there's lots of other history. There's uh, it's has one of the best preserved medieval walls running around the city, um, and you can walk much of that, and that's a lovely way to see the city too, because you're elevated and there's no traffic. You just wander along above the above the roads, and you get these wonderful views out over the old parts of the city, uh, which includes York Minster, which is one of the most impressive cathedrals in the UK. Uh, I think it was built in the 12th century. And it's something that we, we have nothing that compares with it here in South Africa. Which is almost love, speechless about this thing. I am, yeah. <laughs> I, I love those old cathedrals. Mm. And I've been to many of them in the UK. I mean, the York Minster is one of the most impressive, it really is. And it's a living cathedral as well, which is what I liked. It's not something that's been roped off and is just a museum. You know, when I was there, I walked in and they were having a church. I think it was a, for charity or a fundraiser for the church, something. Um, and they were having a soup lunch on offer in the nave. So I sat and had my, my in fact, there we go. There's something fun that I had. Okay, there you go. Oh, that's much better than the <laughs> I, black pudding. I had, okay. I had my vegetable soup soup and a roll from the very lovely church ladies in the nave of, of I York far Minster. I prefer that, thank you very much. It made me feel better now. But the black pudding at breakfast at no, the hotel Richard. I was staying at was still fantastic. No. It really was. No, Not, no, 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 nothing no. quite like it to fortify you for a day of walking the streets of York. You went to Betty's Tea Room while you were there. You must have had something nice there. Well, they do sort of tea and biscuits and cakes and that sort of thing, but that's hardly out of the ordinary. And no, no, I, I, I thought I thought I had a bit of, a bit of a reputation for eating sort you of do. anything with four no, legs you, or two. You do have a reputation <laughs> for eating weird stuff, but that was just a little bit too weird for me. But yeah, you. Betty's Tea Room is quite fun as well, and, and that's on Stonegate, and you'll yeah. find almost everywhere along there has some sort of thing. Of, well, we've been here for a thousand years, and we've mm. been here for eight hundred years, and Betty's Tea Room is kind of the iconic tea room of of York. And I think on a on a rainy winter's day, it'll be a lovely place to go and have afternoon tea um, it's a few steps from York Minster as well so it's very popular um, but so, no I tend to go for more interesting things mm, I know tell me about the shambles I thought it was well that's a lovely name it is a lovely name I love isn't that. it yeah <laughs> Um, I don't know. Yeah, the Shambles is kind of a network of cobbled shopping streets, which is not, which are not far from Stonegate, and it's it forms the heart of the old part of York around York Minster. And they're basically a, they're a lovely place to go and wander. There's you know little gift shops. There are little deli selling uh, you know shops selling local local craft ales. There's uh, there's a, a, quite a long sort of chocolate history in York. Mm, and um, one of my favourite things apparently was. Uh Really? Yeah, the Kit Kat. Yeah, I love Kit Kats. <laughs> really? Oh, it's been a long time since I've had a Kit Kat. But yeah, York is the home of Roundtree, which is obviously where um, mm. a lot of the a lot of the UK's chocolate bars were made. And apparently the Kit Kat was invented in York, so yeah. Um but apart from going to there's there's a chocolate experience that you can go to to kind of experience, you know, some of the, the history and you know, some of the Roundtree brands it's and like that Willy sort of Wonka's thing. chocolate factory kind a of. A little thing. bit, a yeah. little bit. Yeah, again, two run of the mill for me. You know, chocolate, Betty's tea room, I'll have my black pudding rather. Richard. <laughs> okay, right. But they what they do have something that must have piqued your interest was the National Railway Museum because you and your trains. Exactly. Well, that was one of the things that I could salvage from my railway journey was a visit to the National Railway Museum. And um, yeah, I mean, York, when the railway started to boom, York, which is kind of halfway between London and Scotland, I guess, uh, was quite a key part of the, you know that expanding network. And the National Railway Museum is fantastic. It's free to go into as well. It's one of the, you know, the, the couple of dozen museums that, that in, in London and further afield that are sort of funded by the government. They do ask for donations, but um, that's up to you. And it's incredible for for train nuts or otherwise. Um, it's divided into two parts. The one is the more sort of historic part, and they have some royal carriages and and some of the early um, you know, commuter trains that would run on the lines around around the UK. And it's been done incredibly well, you know, with certain carriages themed into certain categories. So there's the royal carriage. It's set up as though you know the early uh, the royals from the early 1900s will be about to set off on a journey, and it'll be talking about the smoking carriage over here and the dining carriage and where the king would get changed and all the rest of it. And then there would be other carriages um, focused around the immigrations that happened. So people going off to this was the train going down to Southampton to catch the the steamer for Australia for people that were you know leaving forever, and the, the sorts of things that people would have packed and how it would have all looked and felt. So that's one side of it. The other side, which I think was more interesting for me, is the main hall. I think it's the, they call it the Great Hall, and um, it's full of a range of engines from around the world and from throughout history. So they have some incredible old steam engines there, um, including ones that set you know land speed records for steam and again kind of early parts of the 20th century uh, those are those are quite interesting they have the only shinkansen bullet train outside of japan you can go and wander through and they have sort of video screens exploring you know uh, not exploring and um, showing what what the experience would be like and then what's also quite interesting is they have a cutaway from the eurostar well a cutaway they have a sort of a cross section of the eurostar tunnel uh, the, the the channel tunnel oh, right. and, okay. and what the train looks like going through and you can see just how much or how little space is available on, on either side, side of the train <laughs> <laughs> which is quite, which is quite, quite yeah. right, yeah. 
Um, and also, you know, it's not all about the modern technology, though. So I mentioned they have these uh, historic steam engines. They also have um, a cross-section of a steam engine, which is fascinating to see just how, quite how, how it all works and how the, um, how the technology has evolved. But perhaps most interesting, at least for my three-year-old son, is they had a real Thomas the Tank engine, the one where you put your, oh, really? your pound coin in and go for a ride. Now, I, I WhatsApped him photographs of the steam engines, the Shinkansen and Thomas the Tank engine. Thomas, one hands down. So <laughs> you take your choice. <laughs> But then it was the end of your time then. You took a train, though, down to London. Back I did take a train. Home, yeah. I did take a train. It was uh, the East Coast Main Line, which is fantastic. Uh, it's one of the high-speed lines through the UK. And... Um very comfortable. If you're in first class, you get food and drinks along the way. Uh, there's Wi-Fi on board. They're you know they're 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 very um, comfortable, very switched on. So, yeah, that was my last train down into King's Cross. Like I say, if um, the gods had seen otherwise, I would have continued down to Cornwall. Yeah, but but uh, that'll that'll be for another time. I, I've done that trip once before, about ten years ago, and it's a wonderful, wonderful journey. Really, if anybody enjoys traveling by train and enjoys scenery, um, the trip through the West Country from Paddington to Penzance is definitely going to be next on my list. I did a, a hear though that that railway line that was washed away in those floods that they had was was repaired in remarkably quick time. It was. They finished it about 12 days after I got back. <laughs> yeah, apparently it was, it was repaired remarkably quickly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it's incredible. If you look at the before and after pictures, mm. the amount of damage, it's not just a case of, well, we'll put some new tracks down. We basically have to rebuild the entire seawall. Absolutely. Um, it was amazingly you know, quickly yeah, that they so did no, that. Yeah, so. I think that was perhaps a matter of pride as well. And it's, I mean, it's a key railway line for mm. that area. You know, it was, it was replaced by a bus service, so that's hardly ideal. So I think they had some incentives. It was happened to, to be the school running. run. It wasn't going to be taking them. They weren't going to be getting there anytime soon. Quite right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, what else is on the cards, Richard? Oh, there's lots of interesting things on the cards for the next couple of months, actually. Uh, I'm hoping to go to Dubai in about six weeks' time, but for a, a, a very different look at Dubai, if it all comes together, which is to look at the, the adventurous side of yeah, Dubai. You like, uh, you've spoken about that once before, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, it's taken you me a little while. You of the airport and went off into the desert. That's right. That mm. was a kind of a flying visit. Yes. I'm, I'm trying to turn that and into a bit of a longer trip. There is a lot more to Dubai, I think, than you know, shopping malls and, and glitzy hotels. So there are things like you can go f- uh, camping in the desert, so, you know, Camping as we understand it, not sort of glamping with mm. everything's done. I mean, they'll, but basically dome tents and a campfire. You can go do that in the middle of the desert. And the, the thing I loved about that uh, trip you're referring to is that the Arabian desert is a proper desert. You know, we think the Karoo is sort of a no, desert with like sort of real rocky hills. This is endless, endless sand, sand. dunes. And, and sandstorms and things. Exactly. Well, that'll be interesting. But there's also the scuba diving. There is some surfing, both in the ocean surfing and, and, and a, a mid desert wave pool. Good Lord. Um, okay. There's there's pearl diving, scuba diving, uh, surfing, the sea kayaking. So there are plenty of adventurous things to do in Dubai. Well, so you have I, to come back so and I've tell heard. Us. That's what I hope to go and find out. Well, you'll be back, I hope, to tell us that I'd when love you to. do come back. I'd love Richard, to. thank you so much for joining us this evening. Always a pleasure. I was chatting there with Richard Holmes, and he's the iAfrica.com travel editor now. If you would like some information, he's the, he mentioned some accommodation up at, at uh, John O'Groats. And if you want to find out more about that, the website is naturalretreats.com. Dot com And for the British Rail Pass called BritRail, there's a website. It's BritRail.net. And if you want to find out what Richard's doing and where he's been and where he's going, you can have a look. He's got a website. It's www.onanotherplane. It's P-L-A-N-E, onanotherplane.com. If I'm greedy, yet I'm willing to share, that's okay. There is nothing wrong with that. Greed becomes wrong when I, after raking in the millions, I still have to go and take the last lamb that a big pompous up the road has and he has nothing more. Then that is when things uh, are qualified as being grossly unjust, unrighteous, and just downright wrong. Join me, Manda Shongwe, every weekday, 4 to 6 a.m. on SAFM as I bring you Heads Up. Sick of always missing your favorite SAFM shows? Well, now you don't have to. We have a free podcast service that allows you to access them directly from your cell phone, PC or tablet, whenever and wherever you're ready to listen. Go to safm.co.za and click on Podcast. This takes you to the SAFM page on iono.fm. Follow at iono.fm on Twitter or like it on Facebook for regular updates. You never have to miss your favorite shows. SAFM Podcasts, powered by iono.fm. For interviews and analysis that move markets, politicians and the nation, listen to SAFM Current Affairs. We announced all of our candidates here today. Not one of them has got a charge of corruption against them, let alone... Somebody from the police, it would appear so, has been looting those premises. 
the expelled Rwandan envoys are suspected of being linked to assassination attempt on Johannesburg-based former Rwandan army boss Faustin Kayumba Nyamwasa. SAFM, South Africa's news and information leader. Time to travel with Karen Key. 2014 is a very special year in the life of people from Berlin and actually the very special date is the 9th of November. It's 25 years, would you believe 25 years since the wall came down, since the Berlin Wall fell. And joining me this evening is Ralph Ostendorf and he's Director of Market Management for Visit Berlin. He's currently in South Africa. Ralph, very special time for the people of Berlin and uh, there's lots to tell us about Berlin. I think it's a city that hasn't really been that much explored by South Africans and maybe we should start encouraging them to go over there. That definitely would be the best idea ever. Actually Berlin right now is uh, like a shining star among all European cities for many many reasons. It's not only 25 years after the fall of the wall which certainly is a very very important date not only for the Berliners but also for the Germans in general because it really marks the day of when Germany was reunified and everything started over and Berlin became what it is today, one of the most exciting dynamic cities, not only in Europe, but also in the world. And you were showing us earlier lots of things that happen in Berlin. It's, it's a city of many faces. It's culture, the culture, the art. I mean, there's just so much to see and do. The nightlife, you were telling us about some clubs that open on a Friday evening and close on a Monday morning. I mean, amazing stuff going on there. And it's very full of young people exploring and enjoying the city. Well, that's probably typical of for Berlin. It's, it's simply a unique mixture of everything. After reunification, everybody expected that Berlin would now become again be like a big industrial city as it used to be, but that did not happen. Uh, the government came to Berlin, which actually was very important also for Germany, but um, the industries, the former industries that always marked Berlin as one of the leading industrial cities, that didn't happen. But instead, the young industries came. And that is really something that is so good for Berlin. Uh, because today you have the creative industries, the music industry. You have uh, the fashion designers that live in Berlin, Berlin. Because Berlin is simply affordable. And Berlin has this unique and emotional power like New York City have used to have 40 years ago. And out of this, because uh, there was still lots of opportunities of reunification, also this, this nightlife uh, came back. Berlin is the only German city that, that, that does not have really official closing hours when it comes to nightlife. And that is the, certainly the biggest opportunity for clubs like the Berghain that I mentioned earlier, which really actually opens up at Friday evenings and then closes Monday at noon. So if I go to work Monday morning, I still can see young crowds from all the world coming out of the club. And they'd been there since Friday night. The one thing I was actually fascinated with is how beautiful architecturally Berlin is. I mean, you, the, the buildings now, I mean, there are the existing old buildings, but there's some of the new buildings are absolutely stunning. Yeah, you always have to keep in mind when you come to Berlin. If you fly into Berlin, you always see trees, 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 lots of waters. Berlin is a very, very green city. But Berlin was almost completely demolished during the Second World War. So everything had to be rebuilt. And you have the architecture of the former city west. You have still this very small housing areas, which are really, really beautiful. And you have the old socialistic architecture in the east part of town. And in the middle and all over town, you now have the new architecture, the, the, the Berlin that was rebuilt after unification. And architects from all over the world have done their works in Berlin. That really gives Berlin this very, very unique charm, also in regards of architecture. And also you still have old castles, palaces, like from the Prussian era. So Berlin also just simply in regards of our architecture is quite unique. What is the best time of year to come? Because I mean, I think at any time of the year there's going to be something going on there. I mean, you actually said that us here in Cape Town, we have the weekly thing that comes out, what to do in the next week. You have pretty much one that comes out every day that's got something to do. There's so much to do there. So, but weather-wise, tourist time, what is the best time for South Africans to visit Berlin? If you come to Berlin in April, that is the time now, when the days are becoming longer, when it's getting warmer. That certainly is, for me, the beginning of the nicest time, until late September, uh, when still the city is green. Because when you're in Berlin, you will see that Berliners love to be outside, because we have many, many parks, waterways, parks, cafes. That is the nicest time when the days are long. You can also do your river tours and whatever, enjoy the time outside. But also wintertime is very nice, Christmas markets. Uh, Germany is quite famous for its Christmas markets and all the Christmas atmosphere. And Berlin alone has more than 60 Christmas markets, beginning all at the end of November. 
And what the nice thing is about Berlin is that some of those cruises are still open until early January because many tourists love the Berlin come to Berlin also for the big New Year's Eve party at Brandenburg Gate, which is Europe's largest, biggest, quite unique uh, New Year's Eve party. And the Brandenburg Gate is going to play a big role in the celebrations on the 9th of November, which is the anniversary of the 25 years of the fall of the wall. Tell me what's happening on that day at the gate. There will be uh, like an illuminated um, balloons, a little big installation of about, in a stretch about about 12 kilometers. The former wall used to be like 155 kilometers long, but on a stretch of 12 kilometers within the city center, there will be illuminated balloons. And those will be released at the same time late in the evening when the former GDR government had announced the gates are now open. It's really telling the people of the world Berlin is a free city, Berlin is the city of freedom. So around Brandenburg Gate on the 9th of November, there will be parties, there will be concerts, there will be certainly emotional speeches. So that is definitely the place, the date to be in Berlin. But during the whole year, there are always permanent exhibitions. So you, if you really want to get an encounter of, of personal feeling, what Berlin was like, what Germany was like when it was divided, then there are always permanent exhibitions they can see throughout the year. And some of that history, though, is still there. I mean, if people want to still look to see what life was like back in the day when the wall was up, I mean, there are a lot of memorials, there's a lot of museums, there's a lot of information that can still be found in the area. Absolutely. And um, what is really nice that most of those things really give you also an emotional encounter. Um, sometimes if you go to museums, you think, OK, I have to go to a museum, it's going to be boring. But uh, like the museum at Checkpoint Charlie, for example, that really tells you stories. It tells you stories about families that were divided, uh, really tragedy, tragic uh, experiences from families who tried to flee from the GDR. Many, many people were killed when they tried to flee from the former GDR to West Berlin, to Germany. And that is being um, also shown in those museums. There's the museum at the Bernauer Straße, where you really can see how the fall the wall looked like when it was still up. So it's really, you get a close encounter. It's not just looking at a picture, it's not just reading a book. You really get a very close emotional experience of what has happened then. You were also telling us about how innovative the German people are in that sort of part of the world, about one of the most amazingly different hotels that you have there. Tell me a little bit about some of the accommodation available for us if we come over. The good thing about Berlin is that after reunification, the whole hotel industry has to be rebuilt. It was completely new, so today you have a really wide selection of five-star hotels, boutique hotels, art hotels, design hotels, but also very nice hostels, which by far are much better than any other use hostel you might be thinking of, but also quite unique, strange hotels. One is uh, um, where you have these typical caravans. Germany's always love to use the caravans, and when you travel through Europe, so we have a big fabric hall, uh, empty hall, and inside this hall there is uh, like 20 different caravans. And you check in at a second counter and then you sleep in a caravan instead of a hotel bed. But we have also lots of other different, unique, quite unique hotels. The other thing, interestingly, I found out about, about Berlin was the fact that public transport is amazing and everything is pretty much within walking distance or cycling distance, so you can get around Berlin pretty easily. Oh, yeah, ab absolutely. Uh, public transportation is very sufficient in Berlin. We have the underground, you have the buses, we have the S-Bahn. So getting from A to B is, is quite, quite easy. We also um, sell the Berlin Welcome Card, which is a combination of public transportation and many, many advantages for tourists. So you never get lost. All the ticket machines are understandable. Everybody speaks English in Germany. That's also thanks to reunification that we had the Americans in Berlin, we had the Russians in Berlin, we had the British in Berlin. So everybody is quite, quite international, so you will never get lost. And if people are wanting to find out more, website address, they can go and have a look for more information? It's visitberlin.com. That's our major website. We have lots of lots of information. You can also follow us on Facebook, on Twitter, all those social media networks, YouTube. There's a lot of things to see and to learn about Berlin, the place to be. Well, it definitely sounds like the place to be in November, the 9th of November to be sure. It's going to be a party, I'm sure, that night. Definitely, if you want to go over, that's definitely the time to possibly plan your trip. And if you want to find out more, you can go onto the website. It's visitberlin.com, but also on Facebook and Twitter, you'll find them everywhere. I was speaking there with Rolf Ostendorf, and he's the Director of Market Management for Visit Berlin. Time to travel with Karen Key.
Well, Sarah Duff's back again, and uh, as I mentioned, I mean, she's joined us before. She's a travel writer and a photographer, and she's been all over the place. The last few times we spoke to her, she was in Uganda and Switzerland, and now she's been off to Kenya, and apparently it's been on her African travel wish list for a long time. Sarah, good evening. Welcome back to the show. Thanks, Corin. Why Kenya? Well, what is it about Kenya that's made you want to go there for a whole long time? It would have to be the wildlife, the wildebeest migration, the greatest wildlife migration on Earth. So um, every year, a million wildebeest migrate from the Serengeti in Tanzania to the Maasai Mara in Kenya. And that, to me, is the quintessential African wildlife experience. You know, you see it on National Geographic Channel and all those amazing photos of the predators going for the animals. So I've always wanted to go to Kenya. And I went in March, uh, which isn't the wildebeest migration season, but I had an amazing time nonetheless, and it's just made me want to go back. Now, you did what we often talk about as a beach and bush holiday, which is a bit of the beach and a bit of the bush, but this was very different. So let's start off with the bush part, which is what you did to start with. Tell me a little bit about that. And you had a very nice experience with some of the Maasai, which is, I think, one of the traditional things people go to Kenya to see. Yes, the Maasai are probably Africa's most famous tribe. So we went to the Maasai Mara. We went to actually a private conservancy on the edge of the Maasai Mara, and it's land that's owned by a Maasai people. And it's actually a really interesting conservation story. So Maasai people have never owned land because they've always been nomads and moved with their cattle. But a few years ago, in an effort to conserve more area for wildlife, the government and some private lodges teamed up with the Maasai and gave the Maasai the land. So they own this land, but they lease it out to the lodges on the land. So it's really great scenario where everybody wins and the Maasai are allowed to graze their cattle in some parts of the land. So there's controlled grazing. So there's more land for the wildlife, the Maasai get some money, and then the tourists also get to contribute to the Maasai and, you know, sustainable farming. So uh, we stayed at a lovely camp called Hem Old Seki Hemingways and we had this amazing Maasai guide called Saruni and he really made me fall in love with Maasai culture. I didn't know that much about it. I knew that they drank milk and blood and I knew they did jumping and I knew that they wore the clothes, you know, just like everybody else. I didn't really have a good idea of what, what Maasai culture was. And he taught me about how they don't eat anything from the wild and how they try and have a respect for nature and things like they don't celebrate birthdays, so they don't know when they were born. So age doesn't really matter to them. So I said to him, well, what age do you get married? And he said, when you feel like you're ready. So, you know, stuff like that, that just, I don't know, I just really felt that, I just really felt a great connection with Maasai culture through him. And he told us about how you pay uh, 10 cows as dowry for uh, your wife. For, and I said, well, what about more beautiful women? Don't you pay more? And he said, all women are beautiful. Oh, I like him already. No. <laughs> I like him already. <laughs> and uh, he would just had such a passion for wildlife and conservation that was just so infectious and so inspiring. So it was really lovely to have him as a guide. And he wore his traditional Maasai outfit. For the whole time, we, he never wears normal, you know, Western clothes. He wears Maasai clothes all the time. So he jingles with all these beads and necklaces and stuff. And it was just really great to experience his land and, and his part of Kenya um, through his culture. And the wildlife you saw there? It was pretty spectacular. We got we flew on a tiny little Cessna plane, um, which was an experience in itself, flying over the Maasai Mara, and we spotted animals from the air. And then we landed, and in five minutes after landing, we saw herds of wildebeest and zebra and giraffe and elephant and hyena, and in the rest of the trip, we saw lots of lion, and we had a really great cheetah sighting. Um, so the wildlife was, was amazing. So even though it's not the peak season for coming to see wildlife in the Masamara, it was pretty amazing. And after that, I mean, you, you as part of your stay over there, you, you also went with Saruni to the Maasai village. Yes, yeah. So we, went, we didn't go to his village, but we went to another village and the Maasai men did the, the jumping story, which is pretty amazing. I've got photos of them and you can see they're a couple of meters from the ground. And they were all wearing their beautiful outfits and then the women came and sang to us and they showed us how they make fire traditionally. We went inside a Maasai home um, and got to buy some Maasai blankets and Maasai beads, which is obviously always part of the, the mm. cultural experience mm. when you go to visit a village. But yeah, it was great. And after that, now we're sort of moving into the beach part of the of the holiday. 
Yeah, so we spent a couple of times in the Masomara, which was stinking hot and very dry. And then we got on a plane, another little plane, flew to Nairobi. And then from Nairobi, we flew to Lamu Island, which is on the north coast of Kenya, near Somalia, which was very, also very hot, but very humid. Um, so we went from the bush to tropical beach in a couple of hours. And Lamu Island is a beautiful island that's known for its history. Um, Lamu Town is actually the oldest town in Kenya. It was established in the 15th century. And people there have been trading with Asia for about a thousand years. So there's a lot of history and different influences there. And Swahili itself, as a language, which the people on the island are, they are Swahili people, that language is a mixture of Portuguese, Arab and African languages. So you can also see those influences in the architecture of the town where you see Arab-style buildings and then courtyards, which are also very um, Middle Eastern, um, but with an African flavor. So it was a really interesting experience to walk through the town. And then the beaches were lovely. This is now World Heritage, a UNESCO yes. World Heritage site. Yeah, now. it's the best preserved Swahili town in the world, and there's no cars in the town, so it's been preserved really well, and everybody gets around by donkey instead of car instead of cars. And you stayed somewhere rather interesting. Yeah, we stayed at um, Paponi Hotel, which is probably the most famous place to stay on the island. So it was in a place called Shela Beach, which was a short boat ride away from Lamutan. So while Lamutan was great and full of history, it's quite noisy and full of donkeys and quite hot and hectic and there's no beaches. So we stayed at Shela Beach, which is full of expats and yoga studios and lovely little boutiques and restaurants and hotels. And it's on a 12K stretch of beach. And the hotel we stayed at was just eccentric and fabulous and wonderful. It's a family-owned hotel that's been there since the 30s. And there's all these traditional Swahili-style buildings right on the beach. So you sleep right on the beach and you can hear the lapping of the waves at night and the pool is shaded by baobab trees and there's frangipani trees in the garden and as you arrive they give you a vodka cocktail and it's managed by this very eccentric British guy who just is full of stories and fun and there's just lots of interesting people staying there in the bar every night. There's not many places on the island that serve alcohol. So it's one of the only places in that in Shela Beach that serves alcohol. So you get a whole lot of the locals coming there every night, sitting at the bar with these ancient cannons pointing towards the sea. It's very atmospheric and lovely. There's rather a special lady, a, a sort of well-known person who has a holiday house out yes. there somewhere on Shela Beach. Yes, Princess Caroline of Hanover has a house there. Um, there's quite a few celebrities uh, who have holiday homes there, and when they're not staying there, they rent out their homes. So if you don't want to stay in Paponi, you can rent out um, a lovely self-catering house, which usually comes with a chef and a private pool. And I was actually walking through the village one afternoon, and I peeked in a doorway at, at a place, and I thought, oh, this looks lovely. And I said to the guy there, is this a hotel? He said, no, it's a private home. Would you like to see? So he showed me around. And it's um, some big wicked Peugeot in France owns it, and they rent it out when they're not there. So he showed me around this lovely house that sleeps 12 people with all these wow. antiques, beautiful wooden antiques and views of the sea and bougainvillea dripping into the pool. It's lovely. And lots of sort of sea activities like snorkeling and that kind of thing there? Yes, yeah, we went snorkeling um, out in the Indian Ocean on a reef really in the middle of the ocean, which was a little bit worrying about sharks, but <laughs> apparently they don't get you, many. You made there. it back, you're in fine, yeah, only one yeah. piece. So that was great, lots of tropical fish on the reef um, and you can go water skiing and we did a sunset dark cruise, which is, you know, the traditional boat that's been sailing those waters for hundreds of years. So you sit on a dow at sunset and they sail you off into the sea and you drink Tusker beer, which is Kenya's great beer as the sun sets. Is anybody great. else out there who's suddenly gone off Sarah now? <laughs> so I'm thinking, really? Really? But also the food you talk about quite quite a lot. The, the Swahili food was delicious. Yes, Swahili food was great. So there's obviously a lot of seafood, mm. um, but my favorite thing to eat was Swahili curry. So because of trading with India for so many years, there's a lot of Indian influences um, in the food there. And I had a really delicious uh, Swahili curry, which came with freshly grated coconut and bananas and coriander and tomatoes and homemade pickles and homemade chutney. It's going off and more chapati. and more as we go here. <laughs> also, I see they had samosas, which is we, we yes. know very well here. Yeah, they do have samosas. That's quite unusual. Yeah. No, it's the Indian influence again. Mm. So they sell them on the side of the road. It's street food there. And we also had some delicious street food, which was um, deep fried cassava, which is sort of similar to sweet potato, a bit more starchy. 
and that was covered in spices, salt, and lime juice. So that was a street snack sold in newspaper for peanuts. Yeah. And you, I was, I was interested in see the kind of things that the shops there were selling. The boutiques there are lovely. Mm. So there's one actually owned by a South African woman who's moved there with her family and that sells um, lovely clothes. There's lots of caftans and sort of floaty, hippie-ish clothes. Um, there was a great shop that sells products made, bags and, and cushions made from recycled dao sales. Yeah, that, I found that yeah. fun. I found what a wonderful thing to do yeah. with the recycled dao sales. And there's lots of them around because there's hundreds of dao's around. Mm. Yeah. Interesting thing. So getting there, the, I mean, f- oh, f- we, you said you first went to, to the Maasai and then mm-hmm. you went from there, you went down to, to the beach. And I mean, two more, two completely different things you couldn't possibly wish to do. Yeah, but it was such a great combination mm. to do the, the bush. So being in the middle of nowhere and falling asleep to the sounds of hyenas at night and, you know, going on long game drives and sundowners on a huge plain surrounded by animals. And then going from that to tropical beach with the Arab influence and the Swahili culture and history and the beautiful sunsets under palm trees. So it was a really, really great combination. And getting beach, to, to Kenya generally from South Africa, pretty easy? Pretty easy, yeah. SAA flies to Nairobi a couple of times a day. It's a four-hour flight. And when you get to Nairobi, you can fly from Nairobi on Safari Link to the Masai Mara and to Lamu. And there's another airline called Fly 40 that also flies to those places. So you fly in these little planes, which is quite an adventure. And I'm assuming all of this can be found on the Kenya Tourism website. Yes. So if you have any questions, just Google Kenya Tourism, and I'm sure all of that will be there. And um, I wouldn't be surprised if it would be on the next plane, um, especially that part about the island. That just sounded absolutely fabulous. Mm. So it's Lamu Island, you said. Lamu and you, Island, yeah. And you stayed at, at Shela Beach and in the Peponi Hotel. Yes. So if people are looking for more information, there's all of that. And if you've missed any of that, you can just email me on travel at safm.co.za and I can pass on all those tips that Sarah's given you that you want to go off and have this fabulous beach and bush holiday. It sounds like almost a unique one. I've never heard of one that's quite that different when you have such completely contrasting um, beach and bush destinations in one country. Yeah, it was such a great combination and really a great option, I think, for a honeymoon, especially Lamu Beach. It's super romantic. I wish I was there with my boyfriend. (laughs) Last time we spoke to you, you were in Switzerland. You told us about an ice hotel. You told us that was very romantic. Now, make up your mind, Sarah. Now, is it to be freezing cold in a glacier or something in Switzerland or on Um, on the island? The island thing sounds... Tropical tropical island. island. Kind of does it for me, too. Yeah, Yeah, but past the honeymoon thing, but it sounds that sounds to me a lot more romantic than freezing half to death in a glacier yeah um yeah the glacier one is, is, is <laughs> you're not going to be warm but you definitely snuggle in your well, sleeping bags and drink glühwein um oh, okay well now i can't make up my mind now because now they both sound fabulous yeah. so well whatever floats your boat whatever makes you happy you've got a choice now sarah's given you two honeymoon options freezing in a, in a glacier which <laughs> could be fun or sweltering on a tropical island you pick Sounds great. Sarah, will you off again somewhere? You're off to Costa Rica next. I'm off to Costa Rica next week. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to hopefully speak to you soon. Yes. About yeah. that. Great. Well, thanks so much again for joining us on the show. Thanks, Karen. I was chatting there again with Sarah Duff, and she's a travel writer and photographer. And if you'd like to keep up with her, as I said, she's jetting about all over the place, you can check out her website. It's www.sarahduff.com. And that's it for Time to Travel for this week. I'm Karen Key. Thanks for joining me this evening. And a reminder that if you need any information about something you've heard on the show this evening, you can find it on Facebook. Just go to Travel on SAFM. Or you can email me on travel at safm.co.za. And I'll be back with you next Monday evening just after nine with the Law Report. Well, it's time now for some nighttime music.